recording. Howdy. Welcome to the tipsy week of Two Finger Guns Club 28 and 28. I'm Zeke. And today, drinking horror stories. This February, our 28 and 28 challenge brings you a new episode every day for a month. If you like what you hear, you can follow us on social media at Two Finger Guns Club. Howdy, I'm Zeke, and welcome to the Two Finger Guns Club 28 and 28. And tonight we're talking to Connor. Thank you very much for participating. How are you doing? I'm good. Yourself? Not bad. Not bad at all. Nice to meet you. You as well. Over the internet. Indeed. Well, I mean, that's the way we're all meeting people these days. Yes, sirree, Bob. So what do you have in your glass? I've got some, I've got scotch in my glass currently. What kind of scotch? I've got an Ardbeg, Ardbeg 10-year. Okay, that's not bad. That's not bad at all. Now, I'm, uh, I started this um, tasting club here, the Whiskey Montreal. Mm-hmm. Prior to uh, the shutdown, we would meet about once a month and uh, taste about five or six whiskeys at a time. Nice. And it was very, very nice, except for the fact that I'm a, whatchamacallit, a tried-and-true uh, hardcore bourbon drinker. Okay. And so it would be the sort of thing that with the scotches that we taste more often than not, I would be making my own blends by the end of the night just because I realized, ah, it's scotch, whatever. <laughs> that sounds a, sounds like a fun but dangerous evening. <laughs> now, it, it's not that bad. We uh, do uh, half-ounce pours. Oh, of course. And the whole thing with, because uh, we'd have a presentation based on, uh, they, they'd be thematically grouped and everything. Okay. So the whole thing would take about three hours. And so even if we're doing, uh, whatchamacallit, that two ounces of scotch over three hours, most yeah, that's not bad. would be able to drive. Yeah, that's not bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I was single-handedly keeping them, uh, drinking the uh, bourbons and the Canadian whiskeys. Everybody else was hardcore scotches. I was saying, I just would grind my teeth. I like me the Canadian whiskeys. I'm, I'm a big fan of those as well. Mm-hmm. Have you tried Alberta Premium? Uh, yeah, like once or twice. Okay, and the cask strength which came out? I honestly can't recall because I believe it was an evening where I tried a lot of different alcohols. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think it was probably at the either the end of 2020 or the beginning of 2021 where somebody anointed the uh, Alberta Premium cask strength as Whiskey of the Year. Oh, Everybody went hog wild. I don't think it's come into the SAQ yet, but it is available at the uh, LCBO. Nice. Mm-hmm. And yes, yeah, speaking of that, where are you located? Uh, myself, I am in. I'm in Montreal. I am in Ver- Verdun in Montreal. For those that know the names, I, I'm in Little Italy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So not that, not that well, not that far. But with the current lockdown and curfew, seems like a long way. <laughs> yeah, it is a little way. I, I adore Verdun. There it's, uh, there's a bar that down there called The Social. Yep. Which is, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, one of the better bars in town. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I like, again, another thing that uh, I'm looking forward to opening back up again at some point. Yes. And so you had suggested uh, drinking horror stories. And then I said, and yeah, it actually occurred to me. And I made a list of uh, various memorable drinks I've had. And to be honest, mm-hmm. not a single one is negative. I've only had good experiences drinking. Okay, well, that's good. That's it, you know. Take take that because uh, <laughs> not not everyone can say the same. I'll tell you that much. Uh huh. What, what what is 
uh, your earliest, earliest horror story or earliest, earliest just uh, remembrance of drinking? Oh, I mean, remembrance of drinking. I mean, I grew up in St. Lazar, which is a tiny town in the uh, much larger now. But when I lived there it was a tiny town in the woods, like close to Ontario. So it was going out basically and just drinking with friends in like parks in the forest, like at maybe like 14, 15. Mm -hmm. But my first horror story has probably got to be a uh, Post high school graduation, about a hundred of us went camping. And the first night there, I drank 40 ounces of gin in about two and a half hours Ooh. and then proceeded to go insane. I'm surprised you're still alive. Uh, I probably shouldn't be. There's, the, yeah, if by all rights, I should be dead, but I managed to make it through. I. I went skinny dipping. I tried to swim in a tarp. I was sexually molested by somebody else. Uh, I got naked and slept in my friend's sleeping bag. And then I was sick for probably a good three days afterwards. I should have gone to the hospital, but I didn't. So that that's the first really, really major one. That is that is impressive. It's it's yeah. There I did similarly. Similarly, although I didn't do uh, which one? That forty ounces in two hours. Yeah. When I was at university, I was went to university in the uh, in the states. Mm -hmm. Their fraternity parties, liquor was free. Okay. It was a, a wonderful and amazing time. It was just before I I was grandfathered in because initially the drinking age was eighteen and they slowly moved it up to twenty one and I was always a year ahead of that. And I can remember one night uh, stealing a handle of uh, vodka. Right on. Yeah, handle is, uh, which one? I think it's um, half a gallon. Oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> and it's the sort of thing where I went around with, a, with, with the bottle. It was, this was cheap rock gut vodka. I think the whole thing mm -hmm. cost at the time maybe five bucks. So <laughs> whether I stole it or whether I, uh, I was probably capable of buying it if I wanted to. But I stumbled around from uh, party to party to party. Mm -hmm. I can remember showing up back up in my dorm room. And somehow, uh, yeah, despite obviously my major, major slurring, I was able to convince some uh, young woman that she wanted to sleep with me. Well, I mean, well done. That's difficult when you're that deep into a handle of vodka. <laughs> but then the thing was that I promptly, once we got into bed, passed right out. Of course. And then the, the next morning I woke up and the, the whole mattress was wet. And at which point I asked her what had happened. And she said, you said you had to go pee, but you forgot to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. And there, the other thing that sort of always, always impressed me the most was uh, which one, that she actually continued to talk to me afterwards. That's, yeah, that's, uh, that's some impressive sang-froid right there. That's uh, quite something. Mm -hmm. Yes, no, she, she's a far better person than I am. <laughs> uh, yeah, wake-ups wake can be terrifying. Mm -hmm. I, I had a terrible wake-up that wasn't, it, it would qualify as the worst drinking story, but I wasn't directly involved in it. However, to this day, it's still probably the worst wake-up I ever had, where I hosted a party at my house. Um, this was, uh, 
I must have been 20. My brother and I sort of co-hosted it. So I was 20. He was 18, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a whole bunch of people stayed over. We had a good night. uh, Went along. And I I took myself off to my bedroom, like, relatively late. I was pretty drunk. I basically just walked in. My knees hit the bed. And I keeled over and passed out. Um, But I woke up the next day and could immediately tell that something was very wrong. The sheets were far too hard, were much harder than they should have been. And as I gradually woke up, I quickly discovered that that's because they were covered in blood. Uh, Not only that, but so were the pillows. There were also bloody handprints on the walls. Uh, And basically, there was just, it, it looked as if someone had been murdered there the night before. Naturally, I was extremely distressed by this and wanted to know what that. So I marched downstairs where a whole bunch of friends were sleeping in the basement and have woke everyone up by saying what the actual fuck happened in my bedroom. And it transpired after some cajoling that a friend of mine had brought a young lady up there uh, who had turned out to still be a virgin. And just, again, through nothing malicious, but just even through various actions with the hand had in fact sort of broken the floodgates, if you will, and they hadn't stopped. And in their drunken state, they had both panicked, not known what to do, had sort of spread blood everywhere, and then promptly just vacated the bedroom and not told me about it. So I went and passed out in a giant pool of <laughs> a giant pool of virgin blood, if you will. I guess maybe I'll live another 10 years because I slept in a bath of virgin blood. That's what Countess Bathory used to do or something, but it was a hell of a wake-up. For a second, I thought I'd killed somebody. <laughs> or, or that you were dead. Yeah, exactly. Or, or, yeah, or I had bled out and was now waking up to my own dead corpse. So it, it, it was, it, it was existential terror to say the least. Yes, that that definitely sounds very, very scary. What was your first drink of choice? Who, um, my first drink of choice probably. Well, my very, very first drink of choice was sort of whatever we could scam out of depeneurs because we were significantly underage. So, like, cheap beer. But my first drink that I, like, would choose to drink and still is to this day is rum. My dad's always been big on rum, and he always had, like, a fairly good selection of it. When I started getting into drinking more as, like, a thing rather than just for the hell of going out and getting drunk, rum has always been... A, a safe fallback for me like I always enjoy it I always have I tend I, not so much mixed drinks because my problem is rum and coke I drink that like it's water but just straight rum a bit of ice yeah I'm always a fan of that and that was that's been since of quite early no I have a similar story in the fact that you know when I went to university I read someplace that guys always walk into a bar knowing what they want to drink and it's the women who dilly dally about and say, I don't know, what am I feeling? What, what do you suggest? Yeah. What is pink? And uh, unfortunately, my dad drank vodka and he still does. Okay. <laughs> and so I started out with double vodkas on the rocks. <laughs> but th- thankfully, I graduated from that relatively quickly. And so by the time I finished university, I was no longer drinking the vodka. Nice. Yeah. That's, I mean, but vodka's a good 
takeoff drink because it's so neutral you can really progress from that into anything so i it's not necessarily a bad choice as like the first one to really start drinking you know because it's a great launch pad no that that i agree but it's just it's it, it has no taste it has no smell so no the only reason you're drinking it is to get a buzz yeah correct exactly yeah yeah there's there's nothing else to it at all it's basically like drinking diesel fuel <laughs> uh-huh do you have any particularly fond memories of drinks Oh, yes. I mean, I mean, yeah, tons. Inter well, it, drinks or that's a good question. Um, like fond memories of particular drinks or fond memories of just drinking in general? Fond memories of a particular drink. Of a particular drink. Yes. Would probably be, okay, probably my last year of Seja and uh, I hosted like our final sort of party, as it were. And a friend of mine came in and started like she dubbed herself the bartender for the evening and basically started like alchemizing just everything that we had in the house together. But what came out of it was she ended up sort of accidentally making a whole ton of after eight shots, which we all loved. And we ended up just through her just random experimentation, we ended up spending most of the night just sitting in the kitchen, pouring things in and actually coming up with stuff that we really liked. So it's not a particular drink, but it was the creation of the drink itself that was mm -hmm. extremely enjoyable. Yeah. Otherwise, it's probably the first time I had an extremely good scotch. I think it was like a Dalawini 15 or something like that. And it was like, oh, like this can be like extremely good like this this can be something that you can really get into flavor wise was yeah was the first time i had like a really really good one i was like oh yeah because again it was fairly young but it was my a realization of i think this is more than just getting really smashed like this is could be something you can really savor and enjoy and sort of get into as a thing and that was yeah it was a dalwini 15 scotch and that really sort of opened my eyes to a lot of stuff there so that's a very fond memory as well no i, I have something similar with uh bookers which uh, is what got me into bourbon in that um, my grandfather was an American whiskey drinker, and depending on the time, uh, the year, and his age, sometimes it'd be Jack Daniels, sometimes it'd be a bourbon, and uh, whatever. There, uh, he died just after Booker's had been invented in 1984. Okay. And I was just getting into single malt scotches. And so uh, after everything had uh, died down from the funeral and so on, uh, probably a couple of months later, they were in New my grandparents were in New York. I was living here in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And so I'd go down to visit my grandmother, and I looked in the liquor cabinet and saw the box of Booker's. And I said, whoa, that looks pretty interesting. And so I asked my grandmother, can I have a taste? She explained to me that it was a gift to my grandfather and that if the, uh, the person who uh, gave it to my grandfather said yes, then obviously I could have a taste. Yeah. And so Joe Jarofsky was the guy who had uh, given the gift to my grandfather. And so I went to see him. He'd known me since I was born. Yeah. I sort of had a feeling he was going to say yes. He said yes. I went back to my grandmother and she said, over my dead body. <laughs> and so I said, Whoa, I don't like it when you change your mind, or at least I said that to myself. Nonetheless, I would visit my grandmother probably about three or four times a year. Each time I would gaze fondly in the liquor cabinet at that bottle of Booker's. Four purposes of this story. After seven years, my grandmother finally died. 
I loved her dearly. She's an amazing woman. I have a picture of her here right on my desk that I look at probably, I don't know, easily a hundred times a day. But she finally died, which meant that the only authority figures left were my uncle and my mother. So I explained to them this story that I'd been gazing fondly on this bottle of Booker's for seven years, and I had really, really wanted to taste it. And so could I? And they said, yeah, sure, why not? Can we have some too? And believe it or not, it beat my expectations. Uh, that's impressive because that's seven years of buildup. <laughs> yes. Uh huh. And since then, it has been my go-to bourbon. It was the gateway that sort of, at the time, yeah, I, I, uh, I bought a bottle of Glenlivet and decided, oh, I have Glenlivet. It's mine. I can do a shot of it, even if it is a really expensive single malt scotch. Mm. I'd had a Johnny Walker Blue. But no, this was absolutely spectacular and uh, converted me almost instantaneously. Nice. Mm-hmm. If, have you had Booker's before? I have not. Okay. No. There it's the sort of thing where in the same way that uh, single malt scotch was invented in the early 60s by uh, what's called Glenn Livett. And it used to be prior to that, everything was always blends and blends were the, what's called the best thing in the world. Yep. The individuals were lousy. They flipped it on its head. With uh, first, it was um, uh, I want to say Baker's, but it's not. But Booker's was like the second small batch bourbon. Mm. And from there, it's everybody start, started to learn. Well, if you just jack up the price, everybody's going to think it's really, really impressive and really, really great. Yeah. At which point, he can make a serious profit margin, which means that yeah, everybody goes home happy. And since then, there's now Knob Creek, there's Baker's, there's Blanton's. Yeah, it's, it's all over the place, and everybody's coming out with limited editions. The Booker's that I had was, uh, yeah, initially it was Booker No, who was head of uh, Jim Beam at the time. And he would always say to his uh, master distiller, save these three barrels for me. Yep. And I want to give those bottle, the stuff that it gets bottled into them as uh, personal gifts. Nice. And then it was the sort of thing where the whole bourbon market, uh, the whole whiskey market just cratered in uh, the late 70s. And so the master distiller, Elmer T. Lee, came up with the idea of let's take this fancy-ass bourbon that Booker No, who is the uh, president of the company, likes, and let's bottle it and slap a really serious price tag on it. And then what they've done since is that now they just sort of uh, blend certain uh, different barrels together, and what they call it is small batch, which given that something like a Jim Beam probably is using a couple of uh, 10 to 15,000 gallons so as to, uh, for a bottling run, uh, a small batch is probably somewhere on the order of like 1,000 to 5,000 gallons, and then they change it seasonally so as to keep the interest high. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. If, if you come across it uh, and it's, you got some excess cash because it's no longer cheap, it's now, I think, at about 110 or so a bottle when the SAQ gets it, but it is definitely worth it, and I will also give you this guarantee. If after drinking it you don't like it, I will buy your bottle off of you. <laughs> okay, so I'll, keep, I'll do that. But I wouldn't be too worried. I tend to... Uh, I tend to drink most things. Looks, sounds good. Bourbon's always a, a good bourbon is, uh, always appreciated. And have you tried cachaça? Um, 
I have not, no. Uh-huh. I have a friend who does uh, private imports, and uh, he has uh, been bringing in some cachaças, and I have been blown away by them. And they're effectively rums, except they're made in uh, Brazil. Okay. And so they have a different name. They're made with uh, sugarcane juice, so they're sort of like uh, rum magnicade. Mm-hmm. And uh, they use all sorts of, sometimes they use e- extremely exotic woods to age it. And so I have one cachaça that is made with, uh, which one, aged in zebra wood. And uh, then they sort of uh, do some blending. And uh, yeah, it is I highly, highly recommended if you can come across it. Nice. Cachaça. C A C H A C A. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so is the Ardberg your scotch of choice, or is it just the one that's handy now? Um, it's the last one I purchased sort of thing. Okay. Um, I, I, I've been getting more into the, uh, like, yeah, the smokier scotches and such. As the uh, pandemic has carried on and the world has become bleaker, I want something a bit more, like, sort of harsh to reflect that. So, uh, so yeah, I've been getting more into the smoky ones. And so I bought, well, just the last time I was at the SAQ, I was like, I want to try it try this out so i grabbed the Ardberg. probably my go-to just for daily drinking is Ardberg because is it the best scotch no but for my opinion is it's the best scotch you can get for 50 bucks yes so that's like for a daily thing and then uh, for like a fancier thing it's sort of yeah whatever i happen to have in a cabinet at the time okay now there there was probably about four years ago i realized that the um, most difficult decision i had in the day was so what am i going to drink today because I had probably about 15, 20 bottles open. And I yeah. realized, I don't like that. Why Why should be uh, choosing a drink be that stressful? And so I systematically emptied them all, enjoyed myself immensely while doing it, and didn't do it all in one night. But now it's what I try and do is just keep one bottle, maybe two bottles open at a time. Yeah. With the distinct uh, idea being to try it with ice. If it's a new, If it's a new whiskey... Try it with ice, try it with water, try it neat. I also try and uh, vary the times of day that I drink it at and the moods I'm in because I can recognize that if I'm in a great mood, a whiskey will taste one way. If I'm in a horrible mood, a whiskey will taste another way. Mm. And then the other thing that is absolutely mind-boggling is that more often than not is if – I leave it, I pour it 24 hours in advance or pour it 24 hours in advance and then add a little bit of water and then drink it 24 hours later. And the differences are, yeah, earth shattering. Pronounced. And that all came from, uh, which one? There's been far too many nights where I poured something and taken it to bed and put it on my night table, fallen asleep, and then woken up the next morning and said, oh, it's there. Yeah, oh, damn. And then you sort of figure, hmm, I don't want to throw that out. That's, no. That was good stuff. It's right there. Might as well. The recognition that tasting it the next morning, it tasted entirely different than it did the night previously. And so now I, I try and do it all over the place so that I can then uh, try various things so that I can have a better comprehension of the bottle. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like to get the whole sort of ga- spectrum of experience, if you will, yes. the whole gamut of experience. Mm-hmm. And what what's the most expensive bottle you've bought? Currently? Um... No, ever. Oh, ever. Oh, 
that's a good question. Probably like the McAllen 20 age, like the one that was like 200 and something. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I once splurged for like a bottle of, um, Christ, I forget the make now. It was quite a while ago. A bottle of like a large bottle of extremely good Tawny Port, which I think ran me like probably 160 bucks, something like that. But I can't remember what it was. It le- it was uh, it, le- it was extre- a long time ago now. Okay. Now there, I'm always a sucker for something that has my birth year on it. And so uh, yeah, I went out and there's um, Armagnac, which is sort of like cognac but not quite. Mm-hmm. There was uh, this thing called the Lebode 1963 Armagnac. It was three hundred and twenty-five dollars. And I said, I'm fuck it. I got it. I'm powerless <laughs> to stop this. Thankfully, I have the money in my pocket, so I don't have to go out and rob or roll some uh, some old granny. And uh, yes, it was it was very very nice. Although at the same time, it is the sort of thing that, depending on what is being aged, how it's being aged, I do my best to try and ignore age statements and re- absolutely refuse to say that an older whiskey is uh, better just because it's older. Yeah, that's, yeah, not, that's always not always true. true. That's mm-hmm. not, not true at all. all. Really? Yeah, no, there, it's the sort of thing when people sort of uh, come up to me and say, no, this 25-year-old is far better than this 20-year-old. And I point out to them that, you know, it's aged in casks that have been used for the past 100 years. And it's the sort of thing like my tea, uh, my tea in the morning. I will use a tea bag twice. And that second tea bag will give me a tea that is distinctly weaker than the first one. And if I were to use it a third time, it would take me probably about five times longer so as to try and get any flavor out of it, which is why, yes, you can make some extremely old whiskeys. Yeah, precisely. It's, it's you know, that's it. If you're not doing some kind of a turnover there, then it's not, yeah, it's not a guarantee of anything. Mm-hmm. Besides the social, do you have any other bars or did you have any bars that you particularly liked in town? Oh, shitloads. Um, Jesus Christ. Yeah, fucking tons. But more generally for the party scene than for the drinks that were offered. I mean, when I was in university and had like $2 to my name, I would usually frequent the La Boite Karaoke because they had those $18 four liter pitchers of beer. So you could just, you could drink like all the beer in the world for like 30 bucks and then get hammered and dance on the bar and sing karaoke with, I was always a fan of Fufun Electric because I liked that crowd. Uh, and I enjoyed dancing on the stage, getting good shots, occasionally witnessing a crazy bar fight. You know, that was always fun. Mm-hmm. For a long time, I hung out at a bar called N Bar because a friend of mine's uh, lady friend was sort of the main bartender slash manager there. And so we would often hang out like after it closed and just get drinks, etc. Um, I spent a lot of time at Brewtopia in university as well because I did enjoy their like particular brews of beer. All the sort of micro brass, the micro brasses that are along like more in the East End, like Les Bock and things like that are all like big fans of um i i liked before randolph when randolph first opened before it became crazily popular and had a line outside of it but when randolph the board game bar first opened we frequented that place all the time because mm-hmm. I, I feel like most uh, my particular friend group and i most of the patrons seem to go there they'd play board games and maybe get one beer each we'd play board games and get 10 beers each and just get like 
hilariously drunk and violent with each other, but they loved it. You know, we were spending all the money. So yeah, I've, yeah, there, there are a lot of bars in this city that I enjoyed. No, there it's the sort of thing. Yeah. No, I, I, I realized we can go down a rabbit hole and list off all the bars as well. There it's my, my favorite bar story is where, um, with uh, just a, a lump, this was again back in the 80s when I was getting into single malt scotch. Made a uh, trip to Paris to go uh, which malt, uh, visit some friends. And mm-hmm. there's this place, Harry's New York Bar, which is where they invented the Bloody Mary. Okay. And I said, I think this is a place that I would like to go visit. And so I went there, and the bartenders were all wearing the starched white jackets. And I realized that it was a tourist trap and that uh, I was going to be spending some money. And so I said, yes, can I see your list of scotches? And so they gave me the blended scotches. And then I said, no, no, can I get the list of um, single malts? And they gave me that. And I said, the Macallan, and let's go for the 25-year-old. If we're going to splurge, let's splurge. And I figured yeah, it, was, go all the way. it was going to cost me something like about 60 or $70 for a shot of it. Bartender scurries off and uh, comes back about five minutes later and says, I'm sorry, sir, I can't find the 25-year-old. Will you settle for the 18? And so I said, yeah, no worries whatsoever. 18 Mm -hmm. will be fine. Move back and uh, find a table. This is a place where all the um, American expatriate writers, sort of like Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, would hang out in Paris in the 20s. Yep. And so there was a lot of cultural references for me that were very nice. Fifteen minutes into the drink, the bartender comes back and says, Sir, I found the 25-year-old. Would you like a taste? And I said, that would be awesome. Yes, please. And uh, he proceeded to bring me, I don't know, probably about half an ounce, maybe three-quarters of an ounce. Not that much, but still significant that I could taste it and uh, had it. And then said, given that, yeah, I wasn't that wealthy, and so I realized even the, with that, I was probably pushing my li- my luck, yeah, yeah. pushing the limits of my budget. I uh, said, can I get the bill? And he comped me the 25-year-old. Nice. And, nice. and the 18-year-old was, I think, $60. So I realized I probably got comped something like about $60 worth of whiskey just because he couldn't find it. And from then, I've always been a big fan of Harry's American Bar in Paris, even though I haven't been back since. Yeah, any any bar where you can get, you get comp 60 bucks worth of whiskey is always going to be worth a, is always going to be looked upon fondly. And and are you as, uh, I, I somehow have a feeling not, but I've become fetishistic about my ice. No, no, not at all. I, uh... No, I whatever whatever's available. I I usually don't take ice. As a matter of fact, I tend to go neat or maybe a few drops of water. With rum, I'll have ice, but I don't care what what's in it. You know, like ice is ice is ice. No, 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 no. <laughs> Once the shutdown is done, I have to have you come over here because there I went and spent way too much money on this uh, ice cube maker. Yep. That gives me clear ice. Okay and clear ice in your glass is absolutely awesome. But here's my question. Are you fetishistic about your ice because it's that much better? Are you fetishistic about it because you spent a lot in an ice maker and now you need to justify the purchase? Uh, No, there I've been using it. I've had it long enough, and I've been using it long enough 
that my cost for ice is cheaper than the bar down the street that is buying the rice from uh, what's called an ice maker. All right, there you go. Cool. But 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 it is the sort of thing that, as you know, a drink is so much more than just the alcohol in it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's the sort of thing where, yeah, I know that I spent three years looking for uh, old-fashioned glasses that were at least 500 grams because anything lighter to me seems useless. And so, yeah, the idea of having an old-fashioned glass that can literally knock somebody out, but then also with a clear ice cube so that you don't see it when you raise it up. Yeah. Elevates the whole experience. And it's it's along the lines of dressing up to go out versus uh, pulling on yesterday's t-shirt and yesterday's socks because uh, yeah there you, you want there's nothing at home and you got to go to, and you want to go to the bar I get you I get you it's a, it's all part of the the terroir of the experience if you will mm-hmm. man yeah so if you have a chance clear ice I can't recommend it highly enough right on I don't know if how if I can justify to the wife that particular expenditure yet but at some point I'm sure I can um no 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 <laughs> there, there there's actually uh, and I will send you a link on how to do it if you got an extra what 30 bucks oh yeah that I got and if you are a little bit handy with some tools mm-hmm. you can make your own clear ice maker easy peasy as long and yet yeah, during the winter you don't even need to have a um, which one a, a freezer that is empty of uh, or relatively empty. Yeah, just stick it outside. Yeah, because the basic idea behind clear ice is that when you normally put in a ice cube tray, mm-hmm. the water freezes from all directions because it isn't insulated. And then the impurities and the uh, added oxygen and stuff like that always is the stuff that freezes last. And so that ends up in the center. Okay. And so what you do is uh, yeah, down at uh, wherever... You get yourself uh, one of these silicone uh, molds that makes two-inch cubes or two-inch spheres. Mm -hmm. Drill a small hole in the bottom. Mm -hmm. And then get yourself one of these uh, coolers that uh, sort of like uh, construction workers bring for for their lunches. Yep. Yeah, I got one of those. One that fits in your freezer. And then you just put a small uh, pedestal so that the... Uh, molds for the cubes and the spheres are on the top and then you put it into the freezer with the top open so that all you need to do uh, that the only way that the water can freeze is from the top down Ah. and at which point then you end up with your you fill it up and you end up with your spheres and cubes clear and then there's half of uh, the bottom half of the cooler that has all the impurities, but that's, uh, yeah. That's just detritus. Exactly. And given that it's water, it takes about, depending on the size of the cooler and so on, it takes 24 to 36 hours. But, yes, it definitely elevates your uh, what you're drinking. Ah, very nice. I like that. That's very clever. Mm-hmm. Not too difficult. Nope. And so, any other stories that you'd like to share? I mean, are we looking for the ridiculous? Are we looking for the tariff? Like for the the I should be dead? Do we want another I should be dead? Do we want another ridiculous? Like, I, I've got many different flavors. <laughs> Whatever you'd like to share. Okay. Uh, this is for public knowledge. Okay. Um, I'll share two then. I'll share another I should be dead, and then a much more sort of just like pleasantly spirited, but very strange. Um, the other I should be dead is. I used to um, ra- sail uh, 
like do amateur sailing racing in dinghies and small boats, like two person crew. Uh, and we went for two years, I was on a racing team and we'd travel around racing. Um, and this particular yacht club that we went to in Ottawa, the Royal Britannia, it's harbors absolutely massive. And we were all in sort of one corner of it. And then there was maybe a 50 foot sort of waterway, the entrance into the harbor and then the clubhouse. But if you wanted to walk there, it was almost a 10 to 15 minute walk all the way around the harbor to the other side. So... We got into the my my skipper Alex and I got into the alcohol and um, we that we knew that there was a party happening at the clubhouse, but we did not want to spend all the time walking around because we were drunk and lazy. So we came up with the idea of creating uh, what we euphemistically called Jesus boots, which is. Along the docks, there were these extremely large bricks of styrofoam, which had been left there, which you put underneath the docks to help for flotation. And we thought that we could simply tie this styrofoam uh, onto our feet and walk across the walk across the water. Jesus, walk across the water. I can see where this is going. Yeah, obviously, this was a terrible idea. Um, I walked about two feet promptly flipped over and was now stuck inverted in the water with flotation devices attached to my feet. So I couldn't flip myself over. Um, luckily I, I have a lot of experience with knots being a sailor and I had enough presence of mind to manage to untie myself. It took about a minute. So I was underwater for about a minute while extremely drunk, but managed to untie myself and resurface. And we promptly decided that, yeah, no, Jesus boots was not the way to go. We still didn't walk around, though. Instead, we found a motorboat that hadn't been locked and proceeded to start Venetian canaling our way across while still drinking beer and offering rides to everybody across with the boat that we stole. So I don't know if we learned a lesson there, but we learned not to try and walk across the water on styrofoam. That was that was not a good idea. No, that, that is not, not a good idea at all. Yeah. So children, if you're listening, don't try and Jesus walk across water in styrofoam. You will end up probably dying i i should have asphyxiated and died uh kudos to you on trying though <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean you know you gotta you gotta give it a shot right i mean you gotta you can try anything once um the other one was probably it was a much stranger story where four four friends of my myself and three friends we spent the evening drinking um the large bottles of Mozi, which I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. For for those outside of Quebec, Mozi is a beer on lees, a very strong beer. It's about eight percent. It's quite good, but it's it'll knock a couple of bottles of that will absolutely knock you on your ass. Uh, and we were about we had the large bottles and we were like three, four bottles in each. So we decided to go for a walk. It was the middle of winter. It was maybe minus 20, but when, again, anyone who lives up North knows when you've had that much alcohol, that doesn't really mean much anymore. We came across a fridge, which had been left on the side of the road somewhere. Uh, we decided to procure this fridge um, to take it sailing. So we brought it to a soccer field uh, we got ourselves branches and we started pulling it across the ice. We we dubbed it the the fridge the SS Judy Dench. Uh, we loaded it up with all the rest of the mozi, so it acted a bit like our own personal cooler. And spent the night very slowly pushing ourselves across the soccer field, drinking toasts to the SS Judy Dench uh, and singing sea, sea shanties while pushing ourselves across the soccer. And then we left it in the middle of the field. So I'm the whoever found it the next day was 
probably extremely, extremely curious as to what happened. But it was a fine vessel. It treated us very well that night. It got us where we wanted to go. It kept our drinks like in a relatively good condition at the same time. All in all, uh, you know, we were very thankful for the SS Judy Dench. Sounds, sounds like it was lots of fun. Mm-hmm. Now, there it, it was, uh, again, back in university, one of these uh, fraternity parties where the beer was beer was free. And uh, I had uh, met this woman who was on a term abroad, but she was from England. Okay. And in England, uh, in university or in school, your Christmas break is like two and a half months. Mm-hmm. It's none, none of this three-week nonsense that we have here. And so she very uh, astutely had decided for Christmas break, she and the other woman who were doing the term abroad from England were going to go straight down to Florida because it was warmer there. Yeah, yeah. England, uh, England in the winter sucks balls. Not a good place to be. No, no, no. And then we were here. We were up here in uh, northern uh, upstate New York, which is also it sucks. It sucks to be, uh, it sucks as a place to be in winter. I had had a friend who had driven her down to Florida because he lived there, and so I knew the route. And I was at this uh, fraternity party, and we were proceeding to get uh, oh, a little bit buzzed, very happy, and so on. And I started talking to everybody about Anita and how okay. I really wanted to see her. And I have never had a driver's license. I've never owned a car. And so I started uh, putting on puppy dog eyes and asking people if they wanted to drive me down to Florida so I could see Anita. <laughs> and so one guy, Jeff, said, yeah, he'd do it. But uh, in order to do it, he wasn't because it was going to take a couple of days. He wouldn't do it without his girlfriend. So I then went up to his girlfriend, put on the puppy dog eyes and convinced her to come along with us. By which point he then said, oh, yeah, by the way, if we're going to be doing this, I can't do all the driving myself. So at which point I need a backup driver. So then I asked him who would be the backup driver, who would be acceptable to drive his car. He said his roommate. So I went to his roommate. By this time, I'd gotten become almost professional with the puppy dog eyes, got uh, his roommate to say, yes, he'd come along. And so I think about four o'clock in the morning on a Thursday, uh, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, we pulled out of Albany and started driving down to Florida. It wasn't until Friday when we were in Richmond, Virginia, where they said, whoa, what the hell are we doing? Yeah, why are we... (laughs) <laughs> we, we are we are skipping school so as to drive you down to Florida so you can see this woman. So they then they were to their uh, benefit. They were responsible. We stopped off at the bus station. They made sure that I bought myself a return bus ticket to uh, Albany, and then they left me off at this toll plaza where it was snowing. It was cold. And uh, I stuck out my thumb. Nobody was paying attention to me. I suddenly finally realized that what people would do is there were these uh, tractor trailers that would just stop. And people who were uh, trying to hitchhike would just knock on the door, haul themselves up. And the trucker would say, "Okay, fine. Where are you going? Okay. Got a trucker to drive me from Richmond, Virginia, down to Georgia. Found somebody to drive me from Georgia to Florida and then another one to drive me down Florida. And at the time, I did not realize how damn large Florida was. It almost took me as much time to go from Richmond to Georgia as it took me just to uh, get down to Florida. Yeah, it's long. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, get down to uh, West Palm Beach where Anita apparently is staying at the first trailer park on the right when you take the Okeechobee Boulevard exit off of the I-95. 
So pull in probably about five o'clock in the morning. I find myself a diner that's open. Realize it's a little bit too early to start going looking for her. So I order myself breakfast. I get my coffee. I start reading the newspaper. Somewhere about eight, nine o'clock, I say, okay, eh, let's go do this. So I go to the first um, trailer park on the right, and nobody knows about two English women who have, uh, who are there. So then I go to the, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe uh, Mike gave me the wrong directions. Let me try the trailer park on the left. Go to the one on the left. Nobody knows about it. But by chance, I run into this guy who is from Quebec. And so I start speaking to him in French, and he is completely charmed. And so I keep trundling along, and then, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes later, he comes up to me in a car and says, uh, are you the guy who's looking for the two English women? And I say, yes. And he says, hop in the car. We spend the next, uh, what do you want, three, four hours hitting every damn trailer park within a 10-mile radius of Okeechobee Boulevard looking for Anita and her roommate. Yeah. Yeah. And by this time, yeah, I've been up 72 hours. I realize, okay, no, she's not there. Something's wrong. So I asked this gentleman who I wish I remembered his name uh, because, yeah, he really, really was nice. Uh, He drives me to the bus station. I give the bus driver my ticket, and I fall asleep for the entire trip back, (laughs) which is still like another 12, 18-hour trip. Easily. And then uh, get back. Go check out my mail as I'm walking back into uh, my dorm room. There's a letter from Anita saying, oh, and by the way, we moved from West Palm Beach to Palm Beach. Ah, shit. (laughs) But yes, the power of alcohol is... Yeah, yeah, it's like, no, yeah, no, we can go. We can all go. It'll be fine. It'll be great, you know? Yeah, of course, it'll be fine. Why not? Let's all go. And then the realization, uh, that's great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. At which point, right now, out of stories. And Connor, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Tons. Yeah, thank you, Zeke. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure, and I, I assume we will be speaking again. Uh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, if nothing else, my name's Speak. I tend to talk a lot. I'm sure you'll be hearing from me. Thank you very much, man. Executive production by Alex Lucier-Craig, Alexa Jordans, and Tina Lullum. Technical production by Tina Lullum. Theme song by Louis Nagy. Follow us on social media at Two Finger Guns Club to stay up to date with the latest from TFGC and stay tuned for more great content coming your way the entire month of February. You didn't think we'd leave you hanging on the weekends, did you? TFGC Presents 28 and 28 continues every Saturday and Sunday in February. Join us for some Saturday surprises and close out your week with Sunday stories from the world of the Fairy Godfathers, available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Follow us on social media at Two Finger Guns Club. This has been a Two Finger Guns Club production. Pew, pew.